From WHQR Public Media, this is the Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us for special elections coverage, looking at the results of Tuesday's Election Day. Coming up later on today's show, reporters Michael Pratz of WECT, Preston Lennon of Port City Daily, and WHQR's own Kelly Knoyer will help us put the Wilmington races in context. And WHQR's Rachel Keith will join us to break down the victories in Leland and Carolina Beach. But first, let's take a minute to reflect on the election itself, the good and the bad. Okay, so what made you come out and vote today? I think it's really important to be actively engaged in your local elections and in local politics. Um, I think it's important to not only vote in your national elections, like for president, but also your local, because that's really where stuff gets run on the ground. And my ancestors, like, they wanted me to have a better life, and I want my kids and my grandkids and to have a better life. And so basically that's why I come out and vote. take a moment to thank the citizens of um, Wilmington who took the time to vote, the effort and the energy to vote. I mean, those voter numbers were up there. A little bit disturbed by, by some of the smear ads that I, that I saw. There was a case um, before the Supreme Court called Citizens United. And for those of you that are not aware of it, that uh, gives opportunity to outside groups to be able to pour money into campaigns, to local campaigns even. And that's what happened in this particular campaign. Thanks for the people who came out and voted. And, and for those of you who stayed home and complained, got to get in the game next time. Thank you for taking an interest in your government. We stand adjourned. Okay, well, we'll get into some of those outside forces later in the show. But first, WHQR's own Rachel Keith joins us to talk about that voter turnout. Rachel, thanks for being with us. Thank you. All right, I know you're as excited as I am to get into data analysis and talk about these numbers, but they are kind of interesting. So let's start with uh, who can vote and how many people voted in this election? So 57% of New Hanover County voters could vote in these municipal elections. And if we break that down further to just City of Wilmington voters, there was about a 28% increase in voters who are coming out on November 2nd. And if we look at early voter turnout, it's the largest increase we've seen over the past couple of municipal elections. And we're also seeing, again, the number of registered voters expanding. And if we look at the early voting numbers, about 41% cast their ballot early. So yeah, this this went from something over 4,000 votes to over 9,000 votes. A lot of more people voting, more people voting earlier. Very interesting. Very interesting, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about our neighboring counties. How do things look in Brunswick County and Pender County? So to start to just give reference and going on that new Hanover County wave, uh, about 24% voted in our new Hanover County municipal elections. And in 2019, it was about 19%. And for us in 2015, it was 15%. And in 2015, it was 10 Brunswick County, if we look at this year, 24.5% came out to vote this year, but in 2019, it was 25.5. And Brunswick County, since about 2015, has had over a 20% participation rate. 
Something really surprising in Pender County, only 16% of eligible voters came out. Compare that to 2019 when close to 28% came out. And historically, they've had consistently over 20% of their municipal electorate coming out. So that was something that really struck me. Yeah. And in the grand scheme, it's worth pointing out that, you know, even though we're seeing improvement and that's great, it still kind of pales in comparison to the, the, the big title fights, you know, the presidential elections. Yeah, I looked up the numbers for our 2020 election, like you mentioned, and in New Hanover County, about 75 percent of registered voters cast their ballot. And again, like I said, in our municipal election, it was 24.5. And again, we are increasing that number of people who are participating in local elections. But when you do that comparison to the presidential race, uh, it kind of pales in comparison. And it's the, it bears out the same with Brunswick County. They had an 80 percent participation rate in 2020, and then they had that 24.5 percent in local elections. Same dynamic going on with Pender County as well. And the point in bringing that up is National elections do affect this populace, uh, obviously, but local elections on the ballot is how we're seeing development, how we are getting local program funding. So people wanting to come in to participate for their local democracy, they can see a result from that. Yeah. And I think some of the candidates this year actually talked about that, you know, explicitly made a, a point of that in their campaign materials was to say, you know, don't you know, don't just focus on the state and federal. You know, so much of what happens in your life depends on the decisions of elected officials that you elect right here in your hometown. That's right. Roads. We talked about infrastructure um, with the beach town, beach renourishment. That is really important to tourism dollars and, you know, how well their economies are doing. So it's important. It's high stakes. All right. So anything else we need to say about voter turnout? Uh, you know, New Hanover County, we're getting better. Voters are coming out. It's It'll be interesting to see if this trend continues. Yeah, 5,000 new voters. And of course, part of that is population growth, but clearly that can't account for the, the increase. So good on us. All right. We'll have more with Rachel Keith on Leland and Carolina Beach later on today's show. But right now, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, our reporter roundtable will help unpack what happened in the Wilmington races. You're listening to special elections coverage on The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman, and you're listening to special elections coverage from WHQR Public Media. Up now, a look at the 2021 race for Wilmington City Council and the city's mayor's office. It was a hard-fought campaign, with more than a few wrinkles. Longtime incumbent Charlie Rivenbark switched parties from Democratic to Republican. Two Democratic candidates went head-to-head for mayor, and the GOP weighed in, openly endorsing Bill Sappho over challenger Harper Peterson. And less than a week before Election Day, domestic violence allegations were leveled against candidate Jonathan Uzkadiki, who had, up to that point, been successfully fundraising and building support. To help unpack what happened, we have a roundtable of local journalists. My guests today include Michael Pratt, journalist for WECT. Michael, thanks for being here. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. WHQR's own Kelly Kinoyer. Kelly, thanks for being here. Hello. 
And Port City Daily's Preston Lennon. Preston, thanks for being here. Happy election season, Ben. Yes, it is the greatest season of all. Uh, so to start, I'm curious, what in this race surprised you? Pratt, let's start with you. Uh, honestly, I'm going to say uh, one of the bigger surprises, uh, maybe it shouldn't have been, would be the re-election of uh, Charlie Rivenbark. I know a lot of people were banking on that, and a lot of uh, there's a lot of name recognition there. Um, it, it was one of the one of the bigger surprises for me, though. There has been several uh, controversial issues that he has spoken about. We also saw that he changed his political party. Um, I'm not sure he was ever a truly dyed-in-the-wool Democrat to begin with, but he did run on that. Uh, so even though it's a nonpartisan election, people do take a look at where your what political affiliation you have. Someone coming as a Democrat and flipping sides like that, it's just uh, surprising to me, uh, but perhaps it should not have been with the name recognition alone, as well as his uh, his stances. They might have been unpopular amongst a lot of people, but uh, there were also people, uh, especially with the uh, being anti-Black Lives Matter, uh, really wanting these Confederate statues to stay in Wilmington, speaking out about, basically, I, I think he said something along the lines, if you don't like living on a Confederate street, uh, you know, named after, you know, Confederate generals, don't move there, things like that. Uh, but perhaps in today's uh, political rhetoric, maybe I shouldn't be so surprised. Yeah, you know, we talked about this in the newsroom that it, it feels like in any other city, in any other age, that a, you know, uh, legacy candidate switching parties in the middle of the campaign season. So that, you know, the Democratic Party put out flyers saying, you know, here are your Democratic candidates and Charlie Ravenbark was one of them. And then, it, you know, switching horses in midstream, uh, that would be an issue. But he seemed unfazed. And, and Kelly, you were telling me, you know, when you got here, you didn't think of Charlie Ravenbark as a Democrat. No, coming from Oregon, uh, I thought he was a Republican when I saw him speaking at city council. So when he flipped to be a Republican and I found that out, I was like, wait, he he wasn't a Republican. So I don't know that it really changed people's view on him because it's not going to change how he votes on things. I don't think he's still he's still very interested in private property uh, rights. He's interested in taking care of crime. These are the same things that he's stood for all along. And I do genuinely think that incumbents have a huge advantage, especially with the name recognition of somebody who's been on council since the 90s. Um, you asked earlier about what was surprising. I think that Luke Waddell coming from behind as an unrecognized candidate uh, was pretty surprising. I mean, he he came out ahead of everybody uh, from from nothing, from no background in politics in this town. So that was surprising. Preston, you did some reporting on the fundraising aspect of this, which I think had at least a partial role in Waddell's victory. Uh, what did you what did you dig into there? So th- that's true in that Waddell's. Uh, best performance out of all the candidates at the polls matched his uh, performance and campaign financing, which I'm pretty certain was the highest of any candidate. Um, Jonathan Nutskategi's final day reports are not yet in yet. He's about uh, $22,000, $23,000 behind Waddell as of the end of September. But Waddell uh, is $75,000 to his committee throughout the um, election season, and that includes a a couple grand from political committees like the home builders, the realtors, and that speaks to uh, his background. Working with the Cape Fear Realtors, the advocacy organization for that trade group, which is an influential trade group in this region. Um, To go back to surprises, uh, let me contradict Pratt's if I can. My surprise for this one was that Rivenbark ended second and uh, not in first, actually. I was surprised last year to see his brother Bill 
placed first out of all six candidates uh, running for the Board of Commissioners. To be honest, I expected something similar uh, last night, but we saw uh, sort of a younger generation uh, surge to first. Yeah, I can definitely say um, I spoke to people, both you know, Republican and Democratic parties, who didn't expect Bill to place quite so high. Uh, it's, it's probably, uh, all other issues aside, a strong testimony for the power of name recognition. There are a lot of Rivenbarks in the region, but you know, something about seeing it on the ballot seems to compel people. They've been in community positions too, right? Like um, the Rivenbark restaurant. Yes. Uh, there's a cemetery, like you know. There's probably hundreds, thousands of people in Wilmington who have been helped finding a grave by a Rivenbark at the cemetery downtown. You know, that's that's something where that. you get to know people. <laughs> that is a weird way to get to know people. But, yeah, that's kind of an intimate experience. All right. So let's let's talk about Luke Waddell because we've started to dig into precinct by precinct. So it's hard to say exactly, you know, how many Democrats, how many Republicans and how many unaffiliated voted for Waddell. But digging into precincts where, you know, left of center candidates, you know, like Philip White, Harper Peterson – and Angie Ulmer did well. Luke Waddell did okay. Like he's he's still holding his own in some of those districts. So it just seems to me like there's no way all the votes for Luke Waddell are Republican. I honestly think he did get some of the moderate vote, um, people who consider th- themselves down the middle. He definitely frames himself that way. You know, recently married young guy, making his own with the business. He has a golden retriever. I mean, he's definitely casting out this image of very respectable young man. And he's also not talking about these hot topic issues on the national stage. He's not talking about CRT or communism or any of these emotional issues that don't come up at city council meetings. He's actually talking about the issues. And I think that that's really appealing to a lot of people. And I also think that he probably won over young people just by being being one of the youngest people running. You know, I talked to fellow millennials when I was at a bar the other day and they were saying, oh, that Luke Waddell guy seems interesting. And it wasn't because, I mean, these were liberal young people, but they just were interested in seeing somebody who's not a geriatric (laughs) on city council. I mean, we heard this in Leland. We heard this in some other places, too. But, yeah, our, our city council is not spring chickens. No. All right. So the other thing that was interesting about Luke Waddell, he told you this earlier this week, was that it wasn't just that he was focusing on policies. He, like, explicitly on purpose avoided going after inflammatory rhetoric or trying to tap into some of the state-level debates. Uh, not everyone did that. Jonathan Uskadegi, I think it's fair to say, was swinging for the, the fences. We talked about this as being, you know, love it or hate it, Trump-style campaigning. Do you think that helped him or hurt him? Ultimately, I think that would be a turnoff to a lot of people. Uh, you know, after after speaking with him, uh, you know, in person, that's not all that, you know, that he had to offer. But when you see that, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, again, we go back to this rhetoric that doesn't really have a whole lot of uh, weight behind it. You know, one of his things is, uh, I'm I'm going to run on law and order. Well, what does that actually mean? What does that look like? How are you going to implement law and order in Wilmington as a one, you know, of several city council members? Uh, there's not a whole lot that you can actually do there. Oh, well, I'm going to fund the police. The police are already funded. They have one of the largest budgets. They take up the most. Public safety is our budget. So you're just, these are just talking points that at the end of the day, I think uh, people are starting to see through it and they actually want to see people focused on issues and talk about specifics as opposed to these nebulous ideas that are really made to just evoke emotion and play off of people's feelings and hatred 
for the other side, what other side, whatever side you may be on, uh, using that emotional rhetoric, it it does get the job done, as we saw with Donald Trump getting elected. Uh, but at the end of the day, it does inflame a lot of people. And, uh, you know, towards the end of it, uh, towards the end of, you know, even Trump's uh, presidency, we did start to see some Republicans leaving the party and saying, whoa, 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 this is going too far um, that you're just trying to inflame. So I do think that ultimately ended up hurting him, uh, focusing more on issues that maybe aren't at the national level would have made a little bit more sense. I think as far as that goes for the strategy, Luke Waddell was focused on fiscal responsibility. So even though he was saying he wants to focus on public safety, I asked him whether he wanted to increase or decrease the police budget. And he said, stay the same. He's not going to just dump money on the police department. He's doing this traditional Republican run of fiscal responsibility and sustainable economic growth above all else. And I guess that really resonated. Definitely. On Luke Waddell, not to step like outside my pay grade here, but it'd be interesting to bring up that a Republican won Virginia last night. And uh, he did so by, I think, doing nothing to alienate the Trump voter base while also running sort of a older school Republican campaign on this sort of free market like uh, ideals that we saw before Donald Trump, but keeping those Trump voters in the basket and seems to be what Luke did. Yeah, I think that that's a good point. And I think there is a line you can walk as a conservative politician where you can gesture to things. I mean, certainly in the, the case of the Virginia governor's race, uh, Glenn Youngkin made no secret of his hatred of uh, critical race theory. I think if you go ham on it, you risk losing some of that uh, figure eight Southern genteel uh, Republican vote. Um, OK, so a- another thing I wanted to talk about, I want to address the elephant in the room here and talk about the week before Election Day, uh, Jonathan Uzkadegi's ex-wife went public with domestic violence allegations allegations against him, and we debated this in the newsroom about whether or not we think that actually hurt his campaign. It's uh, it's a tough question because at the end of the day, he did end up getting to control the narrative um, because I. I I believe, as far as everything I saw, uh, I know WHQR and Star News both had articles on this. We uh, considered it at WECT, um, and after doing some digging into court documents um, as far as uh, separation agreements and custody goes and judge rulings, uh, we could not have done that story fairly without also getting into the details of what uh, you know the wife had uh, judgments, uh, why she lost custody of the children. So we just decided not to step into the uh, sticky family court issues there. Did it hurt his campaign? Um, I'm not real sure. I, 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 no, I don't think it did, to be quite honest with you. Um, the people that would be voting for him anyways, uh, I'm not sure this would have made a big difference. Also, after he did get to control the narrative, you looked at what the uh, the restraining order said. I just don't see it uh, affecting the voters that were going to vote for him anyways. I, I don't think it would have made a difference. I, th- I think it could have possibly, maybe a little bit. I feel like um, with him being sort of a newcomer, maybe the Jonathan voter is a little less grounded to that candidate than a Rivenbark voter. Maybe, maybe they're hanging on by a little softer. And, you know, after... So WHQR first reported this, right, and then Star News followed up with another story. Um, after that Star News story, his Jonathan's current wife went on Facebook and, you know, detailed uh, what you know what she said is the other half of this story. And um, 
that hasn't made it into the media yet, into the sort of local media outlet. Port City Daily came to the sim- a similar conclusion the WECT did and that uh, it, it wasn't something we felt could be touched right now at this point. Fair enough. So a, a different thing I want to talk about, which was, you know, the number of candidates. Uh, it was a crowded field, eight candidates. And in my personal opinion, it looked like the GOP did a better job of managing uh, their team. So you had a unique situation where you started out with Charlie Rembark as a Democratic candidate. In midstream, he became a Republican candidate. And so you then had more candidates than seats. So it's musical terrorist time. Preston? Just a quick one. Uh, I went to vote at Bradley Creek about uh, 5.30 last night. And um, as I'm, you know, the, people are trying to hawk me sample ballots, of course, all the way to the polls. The woman working at the Democratic booth uh, is telling people as I go by that Angie Ulmer is no longer running for city council. And this is, you know, news she's heard on Tuesday, Election Day. That doesn't really equate to the same coordination uh, as you just mentioned, where you have Charlie Rivenbark, featured candidate, Republican Party. Yeah, the GOP explicitly came out and they said, we want you to vote for Charlie Rivenbark, Luke Waddell, and Jonathan Uzkadegi, and we don't want you to vote for Joel Brookings. They said, Joel's a great guy, he's a good candidate, but do not vote for him. On the flip side, if, you lo- if you're looking at the numbers, you've got uh, Angie Ulmer, Philip White, Paul Lawler, and Clifford Barnett. So, again, same problem, but there was much less messaging about this. And if you just take Angie Ulmer's votes, so roughly 4,600 votes, and take them away and then give them to Paul Lawler, Paul destroys the entire board. That's wild. It's it's wild. So, I mean, to a certain extent, looking at their policies, it does look like the more extreme left candidates and right candidates got clipped off. But also there's there's some math here that might have been managed better. Uh, We talked a little bit about ranked choice voting on WHQR earlier this week, and I do wonder if we had had a ranked choice ballot where you can select your top choices and whoever is the lowest level gets taken off until you're down to the remaining three. I do wonder if the turnout would have been the same. I wonder if we would have the same three candidates moving on to city council, because if that had been the case, J.B. Brookins would have been off immediately, and then we would have lost Angie Ulmer right after that, right? She's second least yes, vote getter. Right. And obviously many of her voters, um, she was kind of the BLM candidate, I think you said earlier, would have gone to more liberal candidates. So it's possible that we would have seen uh, Paul Lawler or Philip White on there instead. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, so just interesting math, the way the way that plays out. But all right, I, I want to put a quick pin in this conversation because we need to take a quick break. But when we come back, Uh, I want to dig into the race for mayor and then turn our sights on the 2022 election season, which, yes, is already underway for some. You're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman, and you're listening to special elections result coverage from WHQR Public Media. I'm here now with our reporter roundtable, WECT's Michael Pratz, Port City Daily's Preston Lennon, and WHQR's Kelly Kinoyer. Uh, I want to talk a little bit while, we, while we've got time about Bill Sappho and Harper Peterson. Uh, and I will be the first to admit my prediction here was wildly inaccurate. I had, uh, I can say this now, I had Sappho over Harper by 10 points. Uh, so I was right, but not nearly by the magnitude uh, that we saw. What, what were you guys' thoughts on that? So I, I am not surprised one bit, to be honest with you. I uh, 
it's it's pretty much 60-40 is how I kind of predicted this split. Uh, the reason being is, you know, best case scenario, uh, two Democrats in this field are going to split the Democratic vote. And then with the Republican Party and, uh, you know, it's something the GOP does really, really well is getting in one organized message, as we were just talking about. Love it or hate it, they are great at getting their their ideas across, saying this is the ballot you're going to vote for. And a lot of these GOP voters are going to vote down party lines regardless because they can't stomach the idea of voting for someone that wasn't in line with their party. And with the GOP giving Bill Saffa the endorsement right there, the, the Democrats were going to split for Harper and Bill. And I didn't see a single GOP person voting for Harper, and you can't win elections like that. So I wasn't surprised one bit. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, even if there were people who decided that they couldn't stomach voting for any Democrat, there would be enough Republicans who would throw in for that ballot that it was a shoe in Preston, what, you, what was your over-under on this? It needs to be said, this is just kind of ironic that uh, Harper Peterson has built his brand on coastal preservation and sort of environmental justice in general, being an environmentalist, and yet a, a Washington, D.C.-based left-wing environmental uh, super PAC decided they were going to step into the Wilmington mayoral race for Bill Saffa and um, not Harper Peterson. On their website, it's called uh, Environmental Defense Action Votes is the super PAC. They say they're dedicated to defeating candidates who oppose uh, environmental justice. And I mean, we can just say that's funny, right? Because yes. that's not Harper. Yeah, you can say a lot of things about Harper, but you can you can say that. So the other thing about the the mayor's race that I thought was interesting that didn't get talked a lot during the race, including by me, I kind of came to this realization late in the game, was that this would have been, it seems to me, a really good time to run a GOP mayoral candidate, and there wasn't one. Yeah. Um, any thoughts on that? I mean, I think it was definitely a lost opportunity because you could have seen the Democratic vote split between these two candidates who. Uh, we're definitely going to both run, I think. And that would have almost inevitably led to a Republican mayor, but they weren't able to find anybody. You know, there was some there was some chattering on social media as the polls were closing and saying, hold up, we might, uh, you know, if if Harper decides to run, that could mean we get a GOP candidate in there. That was what some people were saying. But at the 11th hour, uh, I was at the polls as they as the uh, registration filing as it closed, and Harper was the last one to come in. Uh, no GOP candidates. We really thought they were going to send someone at the last minute. They didn't. Uh, so yeah, it was definitely a opportunity squandered for the GOP if they were hoping to get a uh, candidate in for mayor. I think this is a place where people like tradition and people base decisions off of who their parents knew, who their grandparents knew, and sort of old school history of this city. And, you know, I'm not sure how many cities in the state, many cities in the country that American run for eight, nine terms, you know, but this isn't have success. But I, I think that just speaks to conservativeness, not in politics in this town, but just in uh, traditions. And, and maybe people aren't exactly clamoring for change. You saw that in the mayor's race. And uh, that's just my interpretation of the character of the town. I think that's fair to it to a large extent. I think there is for newcomers to this town, Kelly, you could probably speak to this. There is a different kind of set of associations outside of a Democratic and Republican candidates. 
It's definitely very different from politics in other parts of the country. That's not necessarily how things operate in Oregon. In Oregon, there's definitively Democrats and there are Republicans, and it's kind of ne'er the two shall meet. And here you can have a candidate switch from one side to the other and still pull donors from the Democrats and have been voting like a Republican all along for years. So uh, it's it's very different coming from a different part of the country and stepping into this place where the good old boy network is strong. The good old boy network is strong. Yes, you can put that on my tombstone. <laughs> uh, all right. So last thing I want to talk about is, you know, we, we talked to folks in the Democratic Party and folks in the GOP on, on Tuesday night. And there was a joke that's not really a joke, was that on Wednesday, November 3rd, the 2022 campaign season starts. By and large, Bloomington seems to have wanted to stick to the issues. Candidates that did well stuck to those issues. I don't know if that'll be the case in 2022, just being honest. But what are your predictions? As far as county elections go? And so, yeah, we'll be talking about board of commissioners, uh, the, the board of education, and the technically some other boards. I don't think anyone will challenge Ben David, and I don't think anyone will challenge Ed McMahon, but definitely school board and board of commissioners. So I do think there will be a challenge to Ed McMahon this year. Okay. I, I'm happy to be wrong. I like a good race. Uh, I, I, I will say that. Keep your uh, keep your eyes out for someone coming forward to file when filing does open for sheriffs. I could be wrong. I've been wrong in the past, but I do believe that there will be some sort of challenges uh, upcoming. I look forward to seeing what that's all about. Yeah. So uh, so I do think there will be something there as as far as county commissioners go. It will I think it will be an interesting race. Uh, I'm not sure how much the national level politics are really going to play into that race. However, with the school board. As we know, school boards in the past year have become the the flashpoint, and I do think you're going to see a lot of candidates uh, campaigning on things like uh, critical race theory, gay rights uh, books, and issues like that that we're seeing at the you know in Texas, Alabama, or Mississippi. One of these other deep southern red states are you know talking about banning books that have any sort of mention of gay rights issues in them or anything along those lines. So I do think we're going to see some of that. But as far as the commissioners go. Uh, Again, I think that good old boy network runs too strong here. I definitely agree on the school board issue. Uh, I think that we are going to be looking at an election season that's kind of a throwback to the civil rights era politicization of schools and the content of an education. In that case, it was obviously busing and integration. But I think in this case, it's it's similarly drawn along racial lines and concerns. Uh, as far as county commission goes, I do think it'll be an interesting showdown. I'm not sure who the challengers will be, but we are seeing uh, Julia Olson Bozeman and Rob Zappel seek re-election, and they campaigned together when they previously run, and now they are not on quite as friendly of terms. So I think it'll be different. Yeah, and it's unclear if Julia will will run again. She's in arrears with the uh, the state board of elections um, and would have to clear that up. And we've certainly heard rumors that she would run as an unaffiliated or that she would even run as a Republican. As Charlie Rundbark has demonstrated, you can uh, pretty neatly jump from one horse to the other in the middle of the stream and be just fine. Mm. Um so Would I, they be as quickly accepting of her, though, I don't as they know. were to Charlie? I don't know. I think Charlie has perhaps made fewer enemies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think her voting history is also a little bit more mixed than his is. Yes. So she's taken a strong stance on civil rights issues, on gay rights issues. Uh, she's been you know, sort of a full-throated voice behind the 1898 proclamation. So 
uh, the kind of stuff you don't see Charlie Rivenberg doing. So that's an excellent point. She was also behind the tax increase. They're going to be upset if I refer to it as a tax increase, but that's what it was with the county budget that was in favor of t- raises for teachers. And I don't think that was something that most Republicans would have necessarily been in favor of with the tax hike that came along with it. So it would be interesting to see how that would go if she switched sides. Yeah, just a quick editorial note. Uh, so the county does not get mad at us. It was an effective tax rate. Effective they, tax rate. They reduced taxes while wildly increasing the value of all homes or almost all homes. And so most people's tax bills went up uh, no matter what that percentage was. So, yeah, as, as the editor, I can call it the tax hike. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about how uh, the, these local elections stayed relatively out of the fray of national politics. You're talking about how we could see um, some of this inner the consciousness of the school board race particularly next year. But I think it should be said that um, some of Luke Waddell's messaging on crime fits into this sort of national box where you can take his statements and infer whatever you want from it. I mean, his stance is effectively, we need to deal with a rise in violent crime. That's what he says. I I think I'm representing him pretty well there. And depending on your political affiliation, that means something totally different. It's a very charged statement to say now. And we've we've seen some real-life events go down here recently, like New Hanover High School and um, things like that. And so this is something that's actually on the minds of the uh, community, uh, violent crime. But uh, depending on how you go about and address it, you're going to start to get very different responses here. So I've heard from some Democrats that they're they're nervous about him. They think that uh, they think that these soft statements that he makes are that they might lead to more conservative views. I, I've heard the same thing that this is effectively a, uh, a steel fist velvet glove scenario, um, and that he will fire Donnie Williams, and that he will uh, aggressively prosecute last summer's BLM protesters, that he will uh, put the monuments back up, that he will put you know surveillance cameras in all our houses. I've uh, I've heard variations on that because to your point, when you say you know deal with community violence, I mean look at what. Uh, County Manager Chris Couget has done, not to go too far down this wormhole, but he was asked, you know, deal with community violence. Here is a fairly large uh, slush fund to do that. And some of the things would definitely make more liberal progressives happy, Uh, you know, more sort of people-centered, more counselors, more therapists. Some things would make conservatives happier, you know, more security, more SROs, more school resource officers, more chain link fences, more security cameras. Hardscaping. Hardscaping, yes. Hardscaping versus, you know, soft resources. So it's yeah, 100%. It is a very soft, soft term, or maybe to put it another way, um, saying you're going to deal with violence is uh, painting with a pretty broad brush. And, it should, and we kind of, I kind of alluded to this, but I think it should just be explicitly said that like his victory both in the ability to raise money and the ability to get the most votes shows for a fact the influence of real estate agents in Southeast North Carolina and shows that like you can build a candidacy from realtor circles. That's possible. It just happened. Yeah, I mean, it's it's worth noting that in the uh, 2020 commissioner's election, uh, some real estate interests, whether they're called uh, you know realtors or property rights groups, and Luke Waddell has said on the record, I'm a property rights guy, so I don't think we're misrepresenting him here. Uh, weighed in heavily, and they actually weighed in on a um, on a bipartisan platform. I believe it was Jonathan yeah. Barfield, Deb Hayes, uh, mm-hmm. were you know uh, different sides of political spectrum, but both received you know the benefit from that. And they obviously didn't ask that by law; they're not allowed to ask, but they benefited from it. And this year, we saw a conservative group out of Raleigh, I believe, throw their weight behind uh, Charlie Rivenbark and Luke Waddell as sort of you know this is good development. And I yeah, Rivenbark and Waddell uh, on that conservative group and. 
just uh, for for people who care, this is the same conservative group that's been around since like Beth Dawson, uh, and last year made their influence felt with um, opposing the two progressives in the board of county commissioners race, um, going for uh, Rivenbark and uh, Deb Hayes in their in their messaging, uh, et cetera. And so yeah, they're back around, and they've got Luke Waddell's back. Um, and as I said before, the the trade organizations have Luke Waddell's back. And like those are people that if you have in your corner, you usually get elected. I just want to ask, I mean, can we do a quick count of how many real estate agents or property folks are on these public bodies currently? Uh, on the next edition of the newsroom, a closer <laughs> look at how many people in local elected office are actually just realtors. We're going to need more than 20 minutes. Yeah, it's going to take a while. <laughs> no, I think if you were to go to anyone who's been in Wilmington for a while and and suggest that the the real estate industry had sway with, I mean, if you look at the campaign finances as Preston has done, you can see the sort of reciprocity. All right. Closing thoughts from the 2021 election season. Press. Something that is interesting to me that I will say, uh, not necessarily to do with the elections we just saw, but upcoming ones, uh, and the coverage and campaign season in general is a year-round 24 7 365 now i mean we're immediately we're already talking about county commissioners sheriff school board things like that i do think there's been a shift in the past four years really uh as far as how elections are getting covered and i mean we're seeing super PACs from dc investing in wilmington north carolina i mean we're 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 a fairly large city, but come on, we're not to that point that you know DC Super PAC should be involved in our local politics, and it's it's really showing that the people who are putting in the work and really tirelessly campaigning are the ones that are going to end up in winning, and and that's being proven over and over again. So, uh, just be interesting to see who's pulling some of these strings behind the scenes. Uh, I think this election sort of showed that people are generally satisfied with what the city government is doing. I mean, every incumbent who ran won their re-election. And the new person who came in ran as kind of a middle-of-the-road Republican who was basically showing he did his homework the entire time. He was showing that he's been watching every city council meeting for at least the past eight months. What people were voting for in this election was, to some degree, the status quo or people who appeared to be following along and paying attention. You know, 30 percent over 2019 turnout. And we generally saw a vote in favor of what's already happening. So I think that's pretty interesting. Clearly, there's some kind of engaged electorate here. And I guess they like what they're seeing. OK, so it's takeaways. It's takeaways. Um, OK, the, the local GOP thinks... Luke Waddell is the future. That's happening. And um, this, uh, so there's like 90 elections between the three counties that we call the Cape Fear region. Multiple elections in Pender County came down to one vote. Yeah, like the uh, the town of Watha, where I believe the total vote yeah. was like under 50. The uh, Either the mayor or alderman for the town of Atkinson, the vote is like 15 to 14. Like people don't realize how much difference they can make in some of these races. There you go. All right. Well, thanks to my guests, WECT's Michael Pretz, our own Kelly Knoyer, and Port City Daily's Preston Lynn. Thank you guys so much. Thank yep. you. Appreciate Thank it. You. All right. Well, after the break, we'll check back in with WHQR's Rachel Keith to talk about Leland and Carolina Beach. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman, and you're listening to special elections coverage from WHQR Public Media. Now, we're going to talk about some of the other races in the Cape Fear area that were covered by our own Rachel Keith. But first, just a quick note, we interviewed the candidates for mayor of Carolina Beach, current councilman Lynn Barbie and former mayor Dan Wilcox here on the newsroom. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to say that Lynn won with a comfortable lead over Dan. They both ran good campaigns, and we salute them both, and we look forward to hearing more from Lynn as he prepares to lead Carolina Beach through whatever challenge they face next. Okay, now, Rachel, I want to turn our attention to the results for the race for Carolina Beach's town council. Yeah, so Joe Benson, he is the former mayor of Carolina Beach. He was mayor from 2017 to 2019. He got the most votes at 26%, and that was followed by newcomer Mike Hoffer, uh, about 24%. And very close behind Mike was Deb LeCompte. He led her just by 20 votes. So it it was a tight race for the second uh, spot. Yeah, and I'm not sure if we'll see this, but it's worth pointing out that these numbers aren't official. That's correct. Until Tuesday, November 9th, when the canvas is done. So uh, the margin uh, for a recount would be 18.5. So obviously you can't have a half vote. So probably two votes. Uh, And that could shake out. We don't know. But there's another reason Debelkamp's close third place would be important, isn't there? Yes, that's right, because Lynn Barbie, as you said, is now the new mayor. In December, he'll be sworn in, and that leaves his seat open. So Deb LeCompte, the council, could decide that she would take Lynn Barbie's spot on the council, and that follows the precedent of Leanne Pierce. She was elected. She was a current council member. She was elected to mayor, and Steve Shuttleworth got that seat because he was the third vote getter. Okay, so that's, you know, not set in stone, but it's it's a reasonable expectation that we could see that. That's right. Okay, so let's talk about a little bit about the two winners, uh, Mayor Joe Benson and Mike Hoffer, and about what they want to do with their new seats. Joe Benson, he really wants to finish a major stormwater project for the town. He wants to fast track this five-phased project, and he said that he'd like to use municipal bonds to pay for the 30 to $40 million project. He was citing low interest rates for doing this. He really wants to expand wastewater treatment uh, capability. He wants to improve the town's drinking water infrastructure. He was talking about moving all of the water storage to the Matsu buffer zone. That's the military ocean terminal at Sunny Point. That was really high on his priority list. And these are some other things that he said he wanted to accomplish fairly soon in his term. Because a municipality of any size, principal mission of a town, public health, safety, and welfare, explicit to that is water, wastewater, stormwater. Along the way, we continue to influence people who are stakeholders in the beach renourishment project, inlet dredging. Those are imperative to the town. We talked about some erosion issues at Freeman Park. He's said he's waiting to see whether the town ends up spending more on upkeep than what Freeman Park brings in, which is about a million dollars a year. Uh, They are getting their beach renourishment done early next year. Right now, Wrightsville Beach is kind of left not knowing, uh, but the federal funding has come in for Carolina Beach. 
So when it comes to newcomer Mike Hoffer, and, and you've pointed out he's not exactly a newcomer. Some people might be familiar with him. What does he want to do with his time on council? Mike really ran on bike and pedestrian paths. So he is the current chair of the town's bike and ped committee. He thinks that it's going to be fairly easy to get local funding to expand local infrastructure. He is also a stormwater engineer by trade. He's worked for the town before as an engineer. He um, has been on on the planning commission. So Mike's pretty experienced. And he also said on his Facebook page, thank you to the other candidates for keeping it classy. And he also thanked his donors and his family too. So it sounded like this race was about the issues. Yeah, I got to say, that's been a trend across New Hanover County, where in general, the candidates, especially the candidates who've been successful, have stuck to the policies. And, you know, that's a decision the candidate has to make. But I feel like that's what voters are responding to. Right. All right. Well, let's turn our attention to the rapidly growing town of Leland across the river in Brunswick County. Tell me a little bit about how that that campaign shook out. Yes, so Richard Holloman was the top vote getter with about 21% of the vote. He's served on the Leland Tourism Board for about two years. His former businesses were actually consulting with local governments. He's consulted with Leland and places like Sunset Beach and Ocean Isle. He's also the founder of the House of Pickleball, so he's <laughs> very involved in the community. He really campaigned on expanding the parks and recreation Uh, around the town that was really important to him. Um, I do want to put a a quick pin in here. If you're listening and you are a recent transplant today and you don't know what pickleball is, pause this and Google it because you just need to see it in action. But it is, uh, for people who participate in the sport, they get very passionate about it. They're They're very invested in it. That's right. And he also was really excited about the Founders Park. The town recently received a half a million dollar grant to put in a splash pad for kids. He got into this race because he said that he was skeptical about the town raising the property taxes. But when he looked at it, it was all for public safety. And he ultimately agreed with that. And then he also mentioned how important it is to bring in young people into the town of Leland. And here he is. I'm interested in seeing our growth, having many more young people come in. For young people to come in, we've got to have businesses there. And Leland Innovation Park, something the town's been working on for several years, is totally equipped to handle businesses coming in. There are about seven or eight businesses in Leland Innovation Park right now that are providing service across the globe. So Richard mentioned companies like Bradford Products, and he talked about businesses that are, that are involved with biotech that he, again, said he wants jobs that allow young people to, quote, thrive and not just survive. So he is really looking to smart growth for the explosiveness of Leland, but he also wants to support home building and uh, for future property tax increases and then uh, or to build that revenue stream. And he's also looking at uh, sales tax, bringing in people to make sure that the economy is strong there, attracting tourists. So and, and following Holloman closely in the polls was Bill McHugh. Let's hear a little bit of him. Yeah. And Bill McHugh actually got about 21 percent of the vote as well. So close. very close. 
and he was trailed, uh, Allison Dunlap trailed him uh, by about 115 votes, and then Jason Gaver only trailed her by three. So this was pretty close. And then McHugh, he is a lawyer by trade. He really supports smart growth and says that the town is in a position to control more of their planning because so many people do want to come to the town as it is one of the fastest growing municipalities in the state. And he said he wants to move downtown Leland to Village Road. He doesn't want downtown Leland to be on 17th. And Bill McHugh and Richard Holloman, they'll join Bob Campbell and Veronica Carter on that council. All right, so it'll be interesting to see how Fresh Blood sort of takes Leland wherever Leland goes next. That's right. All right. Well, Rachel Keith, thank you so much for joining us and giving us some insight into these campaigns. Thank you. It was exciting. All right. Well, that's just about all the time we have for this special elections edition of The Newsroom. I want to thank my guests, Preston Lennon, Michael Pratz, Kelly Knoyer, and Rachel Keith. Special thanks also to our reporters, Camille Mojica and Ashley Brown, who worked the polls on Election Day, and to our technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed any part of this show, you can find it at whqr.org or get it as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can get a podcast. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.